my favorite chapter to write was the sacred and the profane, theologically justifying uh, swearing. Leanne, would you like to tell us what the first uh, words of that chapter are? Allow me a confession. I have a potty mouth. Blessings to you in the name of Jesus Christ, and welcome to Pastors for Pastors, the podcast that supports and celebrates pastors. I'm Ken Broman, folks, and I'm always glad that you've joined me, but it's especially true for this episode. We're taking a break from the stages of ministry theme to share a conversation with a few good friends, one of whom has just published a book that is so helpful to preachers and teachers, I almost wish I were not retired so I could use it for my preaching. The author is James Calvin Davis, professor of ethics and Christian studies at Middlebury College in Vermont, as well as a Presbyterian minister. And joining us are Leanne Scarborough, pastor of the First Presbyterian Church of Talladega, Alabama, and Susan Takis, the pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Wildwood, Florida. Most of us preachers either uncritically embrace our national holidays, rail against them, or try to ignore them and hope our congregations won't notice, which they always do. American liturgy does none of these things. It celebrates these days while also challenging us to think through them in fresh, new ways. If you preach or teach or just want to think in new ways about our national holy days, you're going to enjoy this episode and James' new book. So let's jump right in. I do thank you, all three of you, for uh, joining us for this episode of Pastors for Pastors, and it is a very special one because all three of you are very good friends, and also because we have the opportunity to talk about a very special book, um, and uh, one of the best books I have read, maybe the only book, which would automatically make it the best one, on uh, the application of uh, Reformed theology to the the holidays or holy days of our uh, American culture, and uh, so I'm I'm really glad that uh, James Calvin Davis is with us. We were together um, six or eight months ago and talking about another of James's books. Uh, so uh, James owes us big time for the promotions that we give to his books. But James, it's it's great to. Uh, have you with us this evening to talk about your book, American Liturgy, Finding Theological Meaning in the Holy Days of U.S. Culture. Also with us is uh, Leanne Scarborough. Leanne uh, is the uh, pastor of the First Presbyterian Church of Talladega, Alabama. Susan Takis. Uh, Susan is the pastor of the first and only, only Presbyterian, Presbyterian Church of Wildwood, Florida. Uh, James, maybe we could start out by um, you were talking a little bit about what prompted or inspired you to write this book. Uh, why in the world uh, did you write this book? That's actually a, that's a really good question, Ken. And the answer is, um, I think, a little un unconventional. It did not start with an epiphany of an idea, and then I uh, dived into that idea. Instead, um, many of the chapters, uh, not all of them, but many of the chapters already 
were occasional pieces that I had written for other things. Um, but I wasn't really sure what to do with them until I started revisiting, revisiting them uh, a year or so ago when I was on sabbatical. Um, uh, some of them years after I had written um, the, the preceding piece for it. Um, and asking myself, what, if anything, pulls these together? And that, in fact, was the epiphany that I realized almost without explicit intention that I had been preaching and writing and speaking on the intersection of theology and culture for years and really with with no deliberate intention to set about to do that. That became the shaping arc for uh, for putting these together. And then um, uh, another practical element of it was that many of them, as I said, uh, began as uh, sermons. I serve as theologian in residence uh, at the congregational church I attend. And as the guy who is the pinch hitter for the pastor, you are often called on to uh, preach around uh, mm, holidays. And so really discovering a theme I wasn't aware of in my um, in these uh, bits of writing that that caused me to pull them together under this umbrella of theology and culture, a reflection on theology and culture and shaped, structured uh, around the calendar year. I find it really interesting that it took you a while to to see that yeah. commonality, because uh, to me, um, that that is your your strength that is that is your gift that ability to to um address the intersection of uh, uh american culture and reform theology so i'm a little surprised that it took you a while to see that it that's interesting you should say that ken i think a couple of um things kept that more hidden from me than perhaps other uh people who have experienced my writing or my uh preaching um, one is just you know when you're when you're in the thick of something and you're you're doing something sometimes you're the sometimes you lose perspective um but also for as you know from uh conversation and from my earlier work i've spent so much of the last 10 years specifically thinking about um religion in american public discourse and public life and questions of civility and questions of forbearance that I think, in retrospect, I think I was using these sermons and essays as a way to talk about something else um, besides some some <laughs> other element of theology and public life, theology and American culture. Besides, why can't people get along? Yeah, I get that. I get that. Uh, although, yeah, I, I would I would say uh, in in conversations that we have, especially our. Uh, to other friends on here, uh, civility goes right out the window uh, <laughs> when it comes to certain chapters, particularly the one on on whether God loves yeah. football, which which you claim God does. Uh, and so, and and so, and I'm, I'm going to let Lee and Susan uh, <laughs> duke it out for fight a minute it out, here. Fight it out. <laughs> I James, I um, adore your book, and one thing I do want to say is that. Uh, as you were talking with Ken, the the idea of lived theology, you know, that's that's what we're supposed to do. It's what we're called to do. And and the way you lay out living reformed theology, which all of us on this podcast today have that tradition. We are reform we come from a reformed background. Um I, I loved that. And tell 
the football chapter, which I think was about chapter three, so it was early on. Yeah. Wheels came off early for <laughs> when, you, right? Yeah, when, yeah they, they really did. Um, um, <laughs> a, 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 as a baseball fan. You're I, a sinner. I, I, <laughs> I am not sure how you... In the hands of an angry God, by the way. How you could not <laughs> see God's grace and glory as that home run hitter is rounding those bases, coming home, home, home to God. That's all I want to say. It works as an awkward uh, metaphor for amazing <laughs> grace, but um, there's really limited beauty in that waltz around the bases because there's no contact. Um, and everyone knows that the beauty in sport is when two things hit each other. Except that, James, in your very last chapter of your wonderful book, you talk all about being an introvert. And it seems to me that as an introvert, that contact goes against the grain of all I know about you. He he just wants to watch other people right. do it. He doesn't participate himself. That's right. I'm not I craving physical contact. I just like to observe it on the field. Yeah. <laughs> I have already used the football chapter to teach a Sunday school class. Really? So, How did that um, go? How it went really well. That? It went really well. And, and it was well received and um, a lot of fun, just a lot of fun. But there's some real good theology in that chapter, too. And, and you know, to watch people go, oh, oh, you know, as, as they think about stuff, tongue in cheek, um, there's some there's some really heavy stuff in there, too. Well, the, it's it's funny that we have gone immediately to the football chapter because the football chapter was the first um, uh, chapter that I identified as something, you know, I wanted to build um, into the book. And in some ways, it is the heart and soul of the book, because if there is if there is a dominant theme, I hope, that comes through these different chapters, it's not, as you all know, not every chapter is about levity, but a lot of them are. Uh, and one of the themes I wanted to get across in the book is that um, that the, the Christian life, the holy life, and theological reflection on the holy life ought to be fun. They ought to celebrate fun because fun is holy too. Yes, that football chapter is tongue-in-cheek, but I wanted it to essentially be a celebration of fun and recreation. And it is that. It is that for sure. Uh, one of the other things that I really appreciated uh, in this book, among many things, um, was your your personal story. Talk to us more about that experience for you. I actually grew up in southwestern Pennsylvania, which is um, just over the um, uh, border of West Virginia, but it is very similar culture at the uh, southern end of Pennsylvania and the northern end of West Virginia. And uh, not everybody in the communities I grew up in would like the term, but I have come to embrace the term hillbilly to as shorthand to describe how I understand myself and my uh, upbringing. And the things, the cultural values I got from that and the things that I love um, uh, about that uh, growing up that way. And this book also became an occasion to, to put some of that down in writing because it has been a preoccupation of mine from the from my college days until um, until now about how to 
how to make sense of the juxtaposition of being somebody from from northern Appalachia, from, as you say, blue collar roots, growing up in circumstances of poverty, um, first generation college um, student, um, and then to go to college and then to go to graduate school and then to end up um, at a at one of the most um, socioeconomic elite um, institutions of higher education in the country, um, and to be a tenured professor, and how do how do those all go together? Um, and I spent most of my time as a student and as a um, tenure track faculty member then at Middlebury with a good healthy dose of imposter syndrome. Like, okay, at any moment here, I mean, I had contingency plans in graduate school. For what 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 would I do when they found out I don't belong here um, and asked me, asked me to leave, um, and and that continued through the first say ten years of my time on the faculty at Middlebury as well. It's only in the last ten years uh, of being at Middlebury that um, I've started to understand ways in which that juxtaposition it is providential um, that I do belong where I am. Um, um, and that there is some real blessing in having experienced both kinds of worlds uh, and that there may be a sense of mission um, in that. Um, certainly at Middlebury, um, I've taken much more seriously my role as a mentor to similar students who get to Middlebury by the grace of God and hopefully find some comfort and some um, wisdom and some help in having a faculty member who has trod that path. One of my favorite essays to write that and that did not pre-exist as a as a as an essay or a sermon before was the one on Labor Day because um, that gave me a chance to write explicitly about um, my roots, about my town, the town I grew up in, about my father's union um, uh, life, and the way that that has been um, that has fundamentally shaped uh, who I am as an adult. Have you? ever experienced in the in academia where you are now or or in in other places a sense of not belonging there from anyone other than voices inside of you uh have have you have you experienced others looking down on you because you don't have the pedigree that uh many academics may have uh yeah i think the majority of it uh has often been in my uh, head and i've been able to fake my way uh, through it uh, for a variety of reasons. But every once in a while, I've had an experience that has aggravated um, that sense of imposter syndrome. I remember the first couple of years I was at Middlebury, uh, we had a, a guest speaker who came and as is the con convention at Middlebury that this, the speaker would uh, do their presentation and then afterwards faculty would take them to dinner. And over that dinner, there was a long conversation about um, art museums in New York City. Um, and uh, folks were just going around the table talking about art museums in New York City. And then somebody turned to me and asked me about um, my favorite place to go in that genre in New York City. And I said, uh, in one of my uh, less cautious moments, I said, well, actually, the only time I've ever been to New York City is in LaGuardia Airport. Um, and this faculty, it was a very senior faculty um, colleague, and the faculty uh, colleague's jaw just hit the floor. He could uh, could not understand how I had never made it to New York City 
the kind of epicenter of culture, let alone never been in an art museum um, in in the city. My uh, lack of experience of um, uh, of being overseas comes up in conversation is kind of um, uh, raised as a point of curiosity. Um, uh, so there are moments, like I said, in the first decade I was at Middlebury, those shook me um, because they did kind of viscerally remind me that I am a fish out of water uh, here. In the second half of my career, I have, I think, just stopped caring uh, that people see me as a hillbilly and I now take it as a point of pride. I, I now see this as a gift, uh, as, an, a, as an asset instead of a liability. James, um, you said um, when you were just talking with Ken, you were talking about feeling like a fish out of water. And one thing I appreciate about this book is that in several places when you're talking about church culture, you bring up how church is set up for extroverts and set up for families and couples. And as you know, I, like you, are very much of an introvert. And then also uh, being single and and how that... Um, plays out for me, especially your chapters, your two Christmas chapters, um, the one about Sarah laughing, your vulnerability, sharing uh, your and Elizabeth's experience in adoption. And that just really resonated with me. And I, I, I personally appreciated that as a person that, because of my own life path, can sometimes feel like I'm a fish out of water, whether it's being single, being introverted, not having a child, etc. Um, so I just wanted to lift that up that I appreciate your vulner vulnerability. Your Susan, you your transitioning to there makes me suddenly realize that one of the enduring themes all through this book are the multifaceted ways in which I have felt weird in my life. Mm. <laughs> uh, um, you're exactly right, Susan. The last chapter is about being an introvert uh, in yeah. in church. Um, that was that that was an essay I had wanted to write for a very long time. Um, because I do think that our church reflects um, uh, an e extroverted mindset. It's not a coincidence because a lot of pastors are a lot of a lot more pastors than people realize are in fact introverts, um, and it's what makes them very good at reflection. It makes them good in certain ways at pastoral care. Makes them good listeners, etc. But there are not extroverts in pastoral roles in church leadership roles that I think that that personality type then gets laid on to the church and just the very language of church and how we so much talk about rightly talk about community we talk about fellowship and it's not like we introverts don't do community and don't do fellowship but we do it in a particular way as i say in that in that essay i'm not just in, introverted i'm clinically introverted um <laughs> i mean i am I am one private moment away from being dead. Um, I, it's, um, and so, and yet I feel called to be part of this community. I, I think that introverts have a lot to contribute to the church and a lot to lend the church in how the church thinks about being church. Uh, so there is a part of that essay that is, is me recommending that, that we collectively think about those personality uh, differences more actively. But I also think um, being part of the community that is church is a good check on my introversion. And then, the, as you mentioned, the two um, the two Christmas sermons are both on parenting in different ways. When Sarah stops laughing is about 
um, Elizabeth uh, and and me struggling with infertility. That's the oldest piece in the book. I I wrote the core of that um, ten years ago as a as a therapeutic move. I, I I'm old now, so I have arthritis, and I um, when I'm having bad days with our arthritis, it's an acute sharp pain. But even when I'm not having a bad day, um, my arthritis then just kind of thumps and aches. And infertility is basically like that. You have your acutely sharp, hard days. Mother's Day is excruciating. Christmas is excruciating. Every kid in your family's uh, birthday is excruciating. And then the other Christmas uh, sermon is about adoption, which has been the other side uh, of that for us. And has been a joy and a blessing, but has been no doubt about it. It has been a challenge uh, too, uh, and I wanted to think theologically about that too because that's one of the most important things we do, uh, um, Elizabeth and me uh, these days. So those are powerful chapters; they really are. And and I also appreciate the chapters on Mother's and Father's Day because as a pastor, those are two difficult days in the church. You know, either. I don't address it enough or I address it too much. It just, but uh, I really appreciate what you said on both of those days as well uh, for those chapters uh, because um, it just kind of gave it some balance and, and gave it some theology that I hadn't thought of in a long time and helped me come to peace, come to terms and be at peace with that. I, I think my main criticism of the book is why didn't you write it 10 years ago when I could have used it? <laughs> you know, these the, the, I, that's a whole year's worth of sermons on all of the uh, cultural holy days. Yeah. Well, each of those two parenting chapters, too, has ulterior motives, right? Uh, the mother, uh, the chapter on Mother's Day is called Mothering as Resistant. I think that's what it's called, Mothering as Resistance. Um and that really is is just an attack on the sentimentality around uh, um, uh, motherhood um, and lifting up both um, biblical examples and contemporary examples of women being mothers and by extension demonstrating parenthood as a political act as a as an act of uh, political values and then the the father's day was an opportunity for me to do a little celebrating of my own father, who is, um, I doubt, realizes just how formative um, he has been to who uh, I am. Um, I have a PhD in theological ethics, and yet the, the, the building, the fundamental building block, the atom that makes me who I am is not that, but um, being Bill Davis's son. And so I wanted to have a chance to celebrate that a little bit. And then on the way to doing that, um, maybe make an argument for not completely throwing father language um, out of our liturgical celebrations, um, that there may be a way to redeem that language. I appreciated that. I, I appreciated that piece of it. Um, and that, I mean, that just, there was so much to think about with that piece about not throwing the word father out. And the mothering is resistance was, was just fabulous because it, it is just a different way to think about that. One of the first weddings that I officiated at when I came uh, to High Point, um, the uh, couple wanted to use uh, the, 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 the Magnificat. Um, and this person said, oh no, we don't do that, that's Catholic. Uh, because of a reaction to the, you know, the over glorification perhaps in the Catholicism of Mary. 
and and yet and yet the Magnificat, my soul magnifies the Lord, is what you base that sermon on is all about political moves. It's all about justice, and uh, and Mary is singing about justice, uh, and and I just love that you brought that up, and what a what a nice contrast to the uh, the sappy sentimentality that we have placed on. Right of both Mother's Day and of Mary, right? Um, yes. Yes. Mary's Mary's song is a is a song of political resistance, and yes. she is channeling Hannah when she does it. Yeah. So right. there is this long biblical legacy of women being the voice of of liberation of justice, and you would be hard pressed to find that represented in American pulpits. Instead, Mary's lifted up. She, she's lifted up as the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it be to me as you right. have said. That's what we focus yeah. on. Yeah. My favorite chapter to write was the sacred in the profane, theologically justifying uh, swearing. Um, so, and that's what the essay is. Leanne, would you like to tell us what the first uh, words of that chapter are? Allow me a confession. I have a potty mouth. I have wanted to write that uh, I, I actually wanted for years to preach that as a sermon, and Elizabeth would not allow me to do so. Um, Elizabeth said, hell yeah, no. She said, what the, yeah, yeah. Um, no, she she would not la- allow me to, pre- uh, to preach that as a sermon, um, because um, I would think about it like every Father's Day, entirely coincidentally, every Father's Day, I would think about doing a sermon on swearing. She would remind me um, that uh, if I were to do a sermon around that time on swearing, that the children in our church would not be in Sunday school. So they would actually be listening to me. And I said, well, of course I won't use bad words in the sermon. But she said, but you would be giving them permission to swear. And that would be the absolutely guaranteed the first sermon that every kid in that congregation would listen to word for word and go home (laughs) and immediately implement into their Christian lives. Um, So she would not let me uh, uh, preach that sermon. So I had to wait for this book to write the essay. And I really wish you would preach it because um, uh, I'm about to start putting together stories from different uh, ministers of uh, their funniest experiences as a, as a pastor. And I would, I would love for you to preach that sermon and then come on that funniest <laughs> uh, preacher videos and tell us the story of how that went. <laughs> and if, if you could do it on youth Sunday or, oh, awesome. uh, you know, Something yeah. when the children are all sitting yes. up front, right? Uh, that would like be the Sunday great. school graduation or something like that would be wonderful. Yes, be wonderful. exactly. Yeah. Confirmation. Well, I yeah. I did <laughs> I did preach the football sermon. Uh, 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 the why God loves football originated as a uh, as a sermon, and I did preach that, and that became seventeen minutes of stand up because. Our pastor is a big Red Sox fan. So the back and forth that Susan and oh. I were having, well, it wasn't really back and forth because I was in the pulpit and he was sitting down. So he couldn't say anything except just laugh like an idiot. And so um, so I just I, I've taken them all out for the book, but I was just pummeling him uh, with um, 
with digs on his uh, affection for uh, for baseball, and it really was a good time. I don't think any theological content actually was communicated in that in the sermon version of it, but it was the best stand up that has ever happened in our church. <laughs> I think. And I'm sure probably one of the most memorable Sundays for everyone in the probably, congregation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so would the swearing would be if you if you were yeah. able to oh, do yeah. that. Because there is much theology right. in that chapter. I mean, there is some there is some serious stuff in there that makes you think and and really challenges us about how we talk about other people. And what would God rather hear a a swear word or or us, you know, saying something ugly about somebody else. Leanne, I'm glad you uh, said that because as as much fun as we are having, and it, and many of these chapters are meant to have fun, but I also there is an ulterior motive to the book, right? And that is to say that there is there's a place to do some deep theological reflection, and that our reformed tradition lends itself to that. Um, one of my pet peeves is that the the books on Christianity that sell like hotcakes these days, are the ones um, that say one thing over and over and over again. And that one thing is not in um, incredibly profound, and it's usually not complicated at all. Um, that what sells uh, um, in your religion bookstore is a book that, um, that gives you an overly simplistic understanding of the faith. I wanted to write something that um, that uh, represented accurately the complexity of the faith, that um, represented um, responsibly the deep tradition of our faith, and that yet, I hope, was accessible to people to think um, about their culture and to think about what it means to be a Christian in American culture with the help of, of this uh, tradition. So I am trying to do something serious in even the the um, chapters where I'm clearly uh, having a lot of fun. I loved in the uh, in the preface when you said that you were sure that your mother was very proud of every chapter except probably <laughs> yeah. that one. <laughs> I haven't heard I haven't heard from her yet on that chapter. Um, so, um, yeah, I we'll find out when I when I finally get to see her in uh, person maybe this summer. Susan, uh, if you haven't already said, what, what's well, your favorite um, chapter? Well, I love the, the Sarah chapter, but m probably my second favorite chapter because we've already talked about the Sarah chapter is um, the All Good Theology Comes from the Balcony. When I saw that title, I thought, oh my gosh, this is going to be about youth group because <laughs> growing up. <laughs> Yes, growing I thought up, so too. Uh, I thought my so too. my home church had a balcony, and that's where the youth group hung out. That's uh, of course. That's and then it turned out to be about my particular love, which is music. And I just, um, I mean, ju just the way that that you brought that up as something that we theologically embrace and something that's so very important in worship and for our own. Uh, faith development, especially in a year when we are all missing it terribly, um, just terribly. And uh, I just, I loved that chapter for that reason, and especially the quote that you have in here uh, from Martin Luther. Um, you say, I truly desire that all Christians would love and regard as worship the lovely gift of music which is precious, worthy, and costly treasure given to humankind, mankind, by God. I just, I, I love that. And I, you know, I, as a pastor, um, 
you know, fighting the worship wars about what kind of music is is worthy and and and, and what is not. Uh, I just really appreciated that chapter as embracing music as theology. So thank you. Thanks, Susan. Did did you read the footnote on that quote too? Yes. <laughs> Yes, I was. So. Um, uh, yes, in fact, let me. I was going to. Well, you go ahead and read that. I was trying to oh, find uh, it. Yes. the footnote. Is yeah. the footnote? Yeah. This, yeah. So the quote is from Martin Luther, as I think you said, right. um, celebrating music, and and you know, again, that's. Um, I think that's really important for us to 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 recognize that this goes the whole way down into our Protestant um, uh, tradition, and that Luther gives mm-hmm. good voice to that. But it's Luther, so <laughs> we're not done with Luther until he's gross or crude or some way, right? Which is also why right. he's one of my favorite reformers. <laughs> and so he says... Read that quote. Okay, Read that quote. a person who gives this some thought <laughs> and yet does not regard music as a marvelous creation of God must be a clodhopper indeed and does not deserve to be called a human being. He should be permitted to hear nothing but the braying of asses and the grunting of hogs. <laughs> Thus saith Martin Luther. I I have to say that my favorite chapter is the foreword or the preface, um, because uh, I've, I've known you as a theologian, and, and just full disclosure for everybody, the reason we have become such good friends was that we served together on the theology uh, task group of the Presbyterian group that writes ordination exams that uh, seminary seniors or graduates have to pass before they can be ordained. And so we we have a kind of a theological theme and uh, river running through our friendship here. And, and um, your, your summary of Reformed theology uh, in in the uh, preface is just, uh, I just read that just basking in the fact that that James writes theology so well. But I also wanted to just say to uh, seminary students in the Presbyterian Church, if you want a good resource for the theology exam on a good summary of Reformed theology, (laughs) buy this book and use the foreword. Absolutely. But I also uh, really appreciated the introduction because of the fact that it it does uh, also... Um, give that foundational um, justification for the uh, looking at the intersection of theology and uh, culture. And it also has a very nice uh, summary of the liberal tradition within Reformed theology in, in the full meaning of liberal, not, not just as a political uh, ideology or term uh, or label, but in the full meaning of the, the traditional liberal theological uh, uh, tr- uh, tradition, which I think a lot of people uh, should read, because nowadays uh, many people have forgotten that, and we throw labels around these days in, in in ways that just categorize and put people in boxes, and then we don't pay any attention to them anymore. And uh, so I really appreciated the introduction uh, because of the foundation that it laid. But, I would uh, I would say Ken that um, if Sacred in the Profane is my favorite essay, the second. The second, my second favorite piece of the book was the introduction. I mean, to to write, um, because it, it did give me an opportunity to to think very explicitly about the intersection of theology and culture, and really for the first time in my career to put down on paper 
uh, at least a sketch of my liberal uh, reformed approach. Um, and I, what I tried to do in that introduction is to complicate the idea of a liberal tradition, liberal reformed tradition, complicated for both conservatives and liberals. To say to conservatives, look, um, to be liberal does not mean to jettison um, biblical authority at all. It means to read, um, to embrace biblical authority in conversation with the best knowledge sources of knowledge that um, uh, that we have at our disposal, and to ask in a kind of bi-directional way, um, how can they speak to one another for the benefit of the life of faith? And then for my fellow liberals to say um, a message that I think is equally necessary, and that is to say to be a liberal doesn't mean you have to break out in hives about anything that looks like it's over 50 years old, um, that um, there is a liberal tradition, um, and it wasn't born the day before yesterday. It was, um, it's at least 150 years old, and it reaches back into ideas that are as old as the faith tradition itself, uh, too. So embrace tradition. Embrace the oldness. Um, you can do that without having to turn in your liberal card. Yeah. And, and I, I guess that's why I also appreciated uh, the the chapter on the first day of, of uh, school. Mm. So I, I just I love that chapter because of that that thoughtfulness. But the way you do it, because you come out of that background, you understand the thinking uh, of of those who are are on the more conservative end of the theological spectrum, uh, and and you never speak with disrespect uh, to to that uh, perspective, even if it isn't yours, which I, I also really appreciate. My writing tends to irritate liberals more than it tends uh, than it irritates conservatives, um, and I think I, I think that says a lot about conservatives, liberals, and um, and maybe also how I identify. But um, I'm I'm grateful that you don't sense an air of condescension uh, in this book because um, I am I, I, I am deeply grateful for being raised in an evangelical or at least quasi evangelical environment it taught me it taught me to love tradition it taught me to love scripture um and it taught me to love church and for and, and to love the fact that church can be a distinct community um and so um there's a lot of my conservative upbringing that i think i hold on to in a certain way even though it it looks different uh now if um, I, I tend to get much uh, more frequently impatient with fellow liberals than with conservatives, um, because I will I think at times I, I find myself stru uh, struggling more to understand um, the stereotypical liberals unwillingness to see the beauty in tradition um, than I am flummoxed by conservatives uh, allegiance to biblical authority. Um, so so. The pot shots at um, fellow liberals uh, get me in trouble more than the uh, critique of conservatism. You haven't asked me my favorite chapter yet. I haven't asked that yet. Oh, I, oh, that's I right. just assumed that, that you had already said. Leanne, what is your favorite <laughs> chapter? I'll, well, I'll edit it. I'll put it back at the earlier part of the conversation. Most of mine Once you have wipe already that been named. Off your face. <laughs> you know, most of my favorite chapters have already been named, but there there are several others. One of them is the Halloween one, though this world with devils filled. And there's a phrase in that that said things are as bad as they seem right now. Yes. 
And, and that's a very real and honest phrase about the world in which we live. But it goes on to say, and I'm just going to read a teeny bit about, it talks, starts to talk about grace. We need a lot more grace in the world. The reminder that we are more than our failings or missteps. We need to hear that we matter, that all people deserve dignity, respect, justice, inclusion, and patience for the simple reason that we are all human beings, children of God. The value that comes from grace allows us to love ourselves and it empowers us to love others even when we do not particularly like what they do or stand for. And then it just goes on and on. And and that's a theme in James in your theology, this um, whether you want to call it forbearance or civility, the idea that because we are all children of God, we love each other in spite of the devils <laughs> around us or the you know the the things that we don't like. Um, there's another chapter of the Holy War on Hate, you know, which is the same thing. We love because God loved, but it's way more than that, way more than that. So I appreciate that. I appreciate the challenge of having to think about myself and think about my own words and actions and um, sometimes where they fall short of these ideals. But, you know, the, the challenge to say, I can do better. You know, this sounds like just a uh, a bald face advertisement, and maybe it is, but uh, you know, there is so <laughs> much. Yeah, that's right. Hold up the book, girls. <laughs> you know, that's that's embarrassing there, there so and particularly... superficial. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Don't do that on my podcast. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> oh my gosh. But you know we are we are we are right in the middle of this division in our culture where on the one hand you have you have folks making outrageous claims about other people or or just being outright hateful and rude and racist and exclusivist and on the other hand you have this cancel culture idea that if you say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing even if it was 40 years ago you are anathema yeah. You you are excluded from uh, from being a part of whatever facet of culture you were in, and um, that that grace is is a, a, a just such a, a wonderful theme. In that chapter, in the in the chapter on Halloween, on the chapter on Holy War and Hate, and then of course on the chapter on MLK's birthday is an indication of um, the importance of MLK has. Um, has uh, the influence that MLK has had on my theology, in particular in the last, say, 10 years or so, as I have had occasion to get into his writing more deeply and teach him, um, I have never appreciated him more as a theologian versus a civil rights activist or even a preacher. And I've long since seen him as a, a, a kind of um, homiletical um, uh, uh, model. Um, but as a theologian, um, uh, and I, you know, I don't know how uh, elastic we have to define the Reformed tradition to embrace him as a member uh, of it. He was he was influenced by Reinhold Niebuhr and a little bit by a little bit by Karl Barth, but um, but in, in some ways it doesn't matter. Um, I still would like to uh, co-opt him because I think his vision of beloved community. Um, is really a message that we need today for exactly what the reason you just gave, uh, Ken, that 
the the impulse to exclusion, to judgment, to um, to fragmentation rather than reconciliation um, exists is legion on both sides, uh, right? Um, and I, I don't, I can't think of another moment in my lifetime in which his call for reconciliation is more necessary. Um, but um, that requires us, to, I think, to um, to um, to resurrect uh, his legacy too, because um, King is um, dismissed as naive by in some circles, and um, re- he was at that yeah, time. Yeah, that's too. right, and reinterpreted in a way that makes him kind of benign in other uh, circles too. But if you if you read what he's uh, what he was imagining, it is a hard labor for justice that none, nonetheless has as its end game. Um, the beloved community of reconciled human beings in the reconciling love and grace of Christ. And that I think is exactly the gospel we need in our moment. Well, uh, James, there's, there's one word that you have used several times uh, in our conversation that I, I, uh, and you've used it to describe chapters in your book and, and I really appreciated it. And I wanted to highlight that word and the, the word is complicate. You, you've said a couple of times that you wanted to complicate things and um, I know, having read the book, I know exactly what you mean, uh, because um, no matter what end of the spectrum in popular religion and uh, culture nowadays, we have uh, we've we've tried to oversimplify positions and put people in those pigeonholes that I talked about before. And you challenge us all to think more deeply and to see in a more nuanced way the uh, the strengths of both or multiple sides of an issue and complicate things because we need to be more nuanced and complicated these days than uh, than the quick uh, labeling of people and then dismissing them because of of that label and I, I really appreciate that about this book. The, you you complicate in a great way, uh, be, not to make it harder to read, but challenging us to think through it in a more thorough and nuanced well, way. Well, thanks for say, uh, saying that, uh, Ken. And I, I hope, yeah, my intention by complicating it is not to, to make it um, more opaque, uh, right? But I think there are I think there are at least three things in complexity, and it's a reason I'm a big fan of the gray. Um, there's wisdom in complexity because the world is usually more complicated than we talk, uh, than at least publicly we, we represent it. Um, and so I think there's wisdom in embracing that complexity. I actually think there's grace in embracing the complexity as well, because when we admit that the world is more complicated, um, than, uh, we understand and that we are able to understand, that means there is room for other people to um, to be um, to be different, to make mistakes. Um, and I think there's also inclusion um, in understanding the world and the, the theological cosmos in a more complicated way as well, because if it's complicated, that's not a problem. That's an invitation. It's an invitation to find your um, your screwy uh, way of being in all of that complexity, which is what I'm kind of doing in that book. I'm I recognize that I am uh, uh, the net sum of of me is a bunch of parts that don't always go together 
um, that we don't all associate uh, with uh, one another. I'm a hillbilly who teaches at an elite liberal arts school. I'm a pastor um, who can't uh, increasingly can't watch his language. Um, I'm a parent um, who has uh, um, done a remarkable job of corrupting the minds of his kids. Um, so, um, um, I, I think under, acknowledging that the world is complicated makes me feel a little bit more at home. Uh, and I have a feeling I'm not the only person like that. So you really are a screw oh, yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am a complete and total failure. And this is just, this book is just a log of that in theological garb. Yeah. Well, now you know why I was so excited about sharing this conversation with you. My thanks again to James, Leanne, and Susan for joining me. Pastors for Pastors is a niche podcast. We're not out to have millions of subscribers, but I'm still amazed at where our viewers and listeners are. The statistics I receive for this podcast don't tell me who is listening, but they do tell me where the podcast is being downloaded. And I'm overwhelmed to say that we have an international audience. We have regular listeners in Dublin, Ireland, Harn Bay, England, and Frankfurt, Germany. If you have a minute, email me at pastorsforpastors2020 at gmail.com and let me know who you are. I'd love to hear from you, whether you listen to the audio podcast or watch it on our YouTube channel. That email address again is pastorsforpastors2020 at gmail.com. Before picking up the Stages of Ministry theme next time, we're going to check in with several pastors, as we've done every few months since the pandemic began, to see how things are going as we move toward that light at the end of the tunnel, but are still very much in the tunnel. Until then, thanks for joining us. And thank you for your leadership of Christ's church. I'm Ken Broman, folks, and this is Pastors for Pastors. Pastors for Pastors.